my name is Patricia King and today I have an exciting message for you to hear. Stop! What are you thinking? We can't make it look like Patricia King is endorsing fighting. <clears throat> Hi folks, uh, Chris Roseberry here. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and your financial contributions to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. And unfortunately, we don't have the the major cash resources that Patricia King does, but we have you, our listener audience, to help uh, support us financially so that we can keep bringing this radio program to you and to the world. If you don't already support Fighting for the Faith financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here we go. It's time... Another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, March 14th, 2012. Tomorrow's the Ides of March. It's about the only thing I can remember from high school literature class, the Ides of March. Listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there's no shortage of crazy things being said by very popular, very well known leaders within the visible church, and the things they're saying are, well, yeah, that's all I got to say about that. They're, if you get what I mean. If you're a regular listener to Fighting for the Faith, you, you well, you know exactly what I mean. We we we've seem to be uh, chronicling uh, the the suicide of Christianity in the United States, and it's <clears throat> not very fun to watch. Anyway, what we do once a week here at Fighting for the Faith, I pick a day, usually midweek. I used to do it on Fridays, but it's a little bit because of my schedule and the things I need to do. Um, Wednesdays are better time for me right now. So what we do is a light edition of Fighting for the Faith. It doesn't mean that the topic is light. It's, it means that I turn the microphone over. It's a singular topic, uh, good lecture or lectures by uh, top drawer theologians and apologists. And uh, we've been working our way through a series of lectures presented by Dr. Michael Horton on the Great Commission. We are up to lectures number 15 and 16. So without any further ado, here is Dr. Michael Horton. All right, let's open in a word of prayer, shall we? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which even this morning has already convinced us once again 
of your favor toward us in Christ and the riches that we have as members of the Abrahamic covenant, no longer excluded, no longer outcasts, and uh, that that exhibits itself and proves itself in the world where people can see the barriers that are broken down because of your gospel, because of what Christ has accomplished for us, and uh, the needs that are satisfied because of the uh, change that you have brought about in the hearts uh, of sinners, where we put others before ourselves, though though inconsistently, uh, you nevertheless are building a kingdom that cannot be shaken in our midst. And Father, help us to appreciate once again uh, in a uh, deeper way what it means to be recipients of that kingdom and uh, to be those who as uh, representatives and ambassadors of that kingdom are able to show uh, mercy to those who are near and those who are far away. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Pastor Brown and I were talking before the service. Since he's going through Zechariah, he's been uh, impressed, especially with, uh, you know, again, with the, the, the extent to which the prophets talk about the significance of justice as a theme. And we often think about those passages in the Old Covenant that speak of idolatry and immorality. But what about all of those passages, those great tracts of land throughout the Old Testament that speak of justice for the orphan and for the widow. Uh, There is indeed a preferential option for the poor in the Old Testament, uh, in the the prophets. Uh, God basically says, you mess with the poor and you mess with me. Uh, You you, uh, oppress the widow and the orphan and you're going to have to deal with me. Whatever you do to them, you're doing to me. And, uh, wow, there, there are all sorts of ways that we can mess that one up, either by uh, forgetting that the old co- covenant that they're prosecuting was a covenant that had forged a church into a political institution. There, in the old covenant... Israel was both a church and a nation. Whereas in the New Covenant, the church is a spiritual nation, but not a geopolitical entity. So now the question becomes especially acute, how do we interpret those verses, and how does the New Testament oblige us to justice and mercy on behalf of those outside of the Christian community? We know... After going through the last couple of weeks, uh, and you knew that beforehand, uh, that the Scriptures enjoin care for the saints. But what about for those outside of the community of faith? Paul says in Galatians 6.10, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. You have people on one side saying, well, now see, it it says, let us do good to everyone, especially those who are of the household of faith. And then you have people on the other side saying, well, see, it says, let us do good to everyone. 
and especially those who are of the household of faith. It all depends on what you put in bold, uh, what part of it you say louder than the other part. And uh, I, I would encourage us not to emphasize one clause more than the other. Uh, they're both there, they're both important, but I think the point that Paul is making is that we are to show justice and kindness as Christians to everybody, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. I don't think that, I don't think that verse itself is speaking of diaconal ministry. I think it's talking about Christians in their calling both to care for the saints and those who are outside of the family of faith. Hebrews 13 exhorts, let brotherly love continue. See, not just general charitable justice, but let brotherly love continue, which is different. We'll talk about that. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. See, there's that theme again of Jesus saying, to his disciples, when you invite people over for a love feast, now this is a, a liturgical meal. This is not a, a uh, you know just inviting the boss and uh, over for dinner so you, you can get up uh, the ladder. Um, but this is when when it's a church event. Don't invite people who can scratch your back. Go out and actively look for people who cannot repay you because that's what I've done. You. And the same thing is really said in Hebrews 13. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And entertaining angels unaware is probably a reference to those angels. Uh, to whom Abraham and Sarah showed hospitality as they were on their way to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, So the context of Hebrews 13 is the Christian community. You have to think about what was going on at that time. If you went back to Judaism, you could get out. There was an escape clause for persecution. A lot of Jewish Christians were going back to Judaism, going back to the types and shadows, in part because they could escape persecution. They could go back under that long-standing clause in uh, uh, the Roman order that gave Jews special privileges in the empire. And the context, then, is persecution and showing hospitality to strangers, particularly here, showing hospitality to, uh, to fellow believers, to fellow saints who are being persecuted, but you don't know them, but they're showing up at your doorstep at midnight saying, do you have a closet I can sleep in? They're looking for me. Jesus had already prepared his disciples for this scenario. One place is Matthew 24 and 25, the Olivet Discourse, where he talks about what will happen between his ascension and his second coming. He says there will be persecution. Believers in Christ will first be cast out of the synagogues. Their own relatives will hand them over, will turn them in to the authorities. 
And then there will be wars and rumors of wars until the gospel is finally preached in every nation. Jesus says very clearly that's what, what is going to happen before he returns. And then he speaks of the last judgment when he separates the sheep from the goats. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. What's what's especially striking here is the answer that the righteous or the sheep give. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? They don't even remember it. And they're not... They they didn't say, well, I'm going to give this this person, whoever he or she is, uh, a Coke and a, a Twinkie because they're... You know, I, I'm, I'm giving it to Jesus. Jesus had to tell, uh, will have to tell people on that day what they did because they don't remember. On the uh, contrary, the, uh, the reverse happens in the case of the goats. Jesus indicts them for turning their backs on the saints and therefore on him, inasmuch as you didn't do it for the least of these, you didn't do it unto me. And they protest the charge and defend their righteousness. And so it's very interesting to see the contrast here. But the bond between the head and the body is so tight, so inextricable, that when the ascended Jesus appears to Saul on the Damascus road, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not why are you persecuting the saints, but why are you persecuting me? And he says, what? Who are you? What? what? Wait. What's happening? And Jesus said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And so he is the vine and we are the branches. He is the head and we are the body. His his church is so inextricably connected to him that as Calvin said, Jesus reckons himself in a measure imperfect until we are raised together with him. He he is unhappy, incomplete, unfulfilled until he has raised everybody who is attached to him from the dead beyond the touch of sin and death. Paul would never forget and would only grow in his understanding of the significance of this bond of union between Christ and his church. And so there in the context... Jesus is not talking about, you know, a general rule for uh, uh, Oprah and everybody to just be nice to everyone. This is not a, a common, just general culture sort of mandate. This is specifically given to the body of Christ. Uh, the people who are identified here as the sheep are those Christians who were willing to go out on a limb for their brothers and sisters during times of persecution and even visit them in prison, even though their name would go on a list themselves. We're willing to take care of them. We're willing to, to, you know, to hide them 
as, as, uh, as Christians hid many Jews during the Nazi campaign. That is what Jesus has just predicted will happen. And so there's no reason to think that Matthew 25, the separation of the sheep and the goat, Jesus is talking in general uh, about uh, people who brought about greater justice in the world. And so in my view, none of the principal passages usually put forward actually supports the emphasis on social action. That is, service ministries to the civil community. I don't believe that the church itself has any mandate any, in any of the New Testament passages has any mandate to form, encourage, or contribute to public policy and public welfare. Well, good grief. What a crazy person is talking up there right now. Um, now, what would happen? What would happen if, if it's, a, it's a, sometimes startling to me how much people will give to the Democratic Party or the Republican Party? I mean, I don't mean people. I mean churches, and give to public political causes. How much? Millions of dollars. Suburban white mega churches will give to Republican causes, and inner city black churches will give to Democratic causes. And talk about just completely confusing the empire of Christ with the empires of this world, and yet Christians being slaughtered in the Sudan and suffering horrible uh, persecution under uh, uh, Islamic regime or in China, and they have no relief from churches that have the ability to come in and help them, come in and give them assistance. Now, obviously, churches are binding the consciences of believers when they ask for money. This is a very important thing. This goes to something that's very near and dear to us as Reformed and Presbyterian Christians, the liberty of the Christian. The liberty of the Christian from the tyranny of anyone. Christ, Whatever Christ imposes upon the church and enforces through the preaching of the gospel, the administration of the sacraments, and church discipline, has to have biblical warrant or the church cannot impose it. And a lot of people went through years and years and years of faithful giving to their denominations. I'm thinking of mainline Protestant denominations. And they, had, uh, they were raised with a great uh, uh, respect for a regular tithe and offering to the church. They knew they were supposed to give generously to the church and all of its operations. They gave faithfully even when they knew that it was going to fund uh, guerrilla warfare (laughs) somewhere in the world until finally they, they just stopped. But also in, in a, a lot of conservative churches this happens, where people are, are expected to give their money in support because Jesus Christ commands 
that gifts be given to the church, to the general offering uh, 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 of the church, and people do that out of obedience to Christ, and then their, their money goes to causes that they don't approve. It happens on the left and it happens on the right all the time. Just as pastors have to be very careful that they do not preach any doctrine or moral requirement that is not authorized in Scripture, we have to be very careful that we do not put a burden on the people to give to anything that is not authorized in Scripture. Now, does this mean that we just don't care? About what happens to people? No. No, we, we have to distinguish between the church as institution founded by Christ with uh, the, the marks of the church as word, sacrament, discipline, and the callings, myriad callings, of Christians in the world. And I think this is one of the places where we really mess this up on both sides and all around in, in these debates. Should the church be engaged in social welfare? Well, Abraham Kuyper, who was a theologian, uh, founded uh, one of the largest newspapers in the Netherlands, uh, founded a university in his spare time, uh, wrote a bunch of books, and then became the prime minister. He said you have to distinguish between the church as organization and the church as organism. There are many things that Christians can do together in organizations other than the institution of the church. And and he says the church not only is free of domination by one of the other institutions in society, but all of the other institutions are free of the control of the church. So the church can never pronounce on anything related to sports and entertainment and, and politics and uh, uh, journalism and education. Uh, the, the, the church doesn't have competence in those areas, but Chris, there are Christians who do. And so Christians need to be salt and light in all of those various callings, in all of those various disciplines. I got two requests within the period of the same two weeks uh, for, to, to sign a document on uh, global climate change. Uh, one was put forward by uh, a collection of mainline denominations, and you can imagine what that uh, uh, was. And another one was uh, put forward by the Southern Baptist Convention, and you can imagine what that position was. And uh, uh, one, one, of, one of my friends, uh, very much of a transformationalist, said, well, which one did you sign? You don't know me well enough, do you? Uh, <laughs> uh, what? I, I'm just trying to imagine the, uh, what goes through people's minds when they gather at a pastor's convention, basically, and imagine that they have the expertise to handle this one. Uh, you know, you, there are all kinds of, of, of economists and scientists and, and, and uh, health workers, all sorts of people out there who, who are routinely 
routinely, who routinely chuckle within themselves every time the church pontificates outside of its field either of competency or authorization. And then the church just loses all credibility in the culture on the very things that it could have credibility to address, which are really at the heart of things. Because we confuse the calling of the church with the calling of the Christian. And we confuse the Great Commission with the Great Commandment. The Great Commandment, of course, is laid out for us in Matthew 23, verses 37 through 40, where Jesus is approached by the young lawyer who asks Jesus, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. See, this is... Jesus was so much better than Moses. Moses was la, 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 la. You know, uh, one more... One more log on the fire, and we're all just going to quit. And Jesus came along and said, just love. Not all these rules. Just love. All we need is love. Do, 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 do. And uh, you know, that's, that's, that's why we like Jesus so much, because he really, he, he really got that. And, and kind of Judaism is it's pretty legalistic, and Jesus was all about love. Calvin heard that too in his day and said, as if that's easier. Uh, yeah, it's a lot easier to love. I can, I can keep from stealing your bike, but uh, tell me that I have to love you as much as I love myself and put you first? No, that's not. Uh, and uh, that's what Jesus was pushing this young lawyer on. You know, what's the one thing that I really should focus on? so that I can be a part of this age to come, this thing that's going to happen at the end of, of the age when Messiah comes. And he says, well, you know what the law says. And he, of course he knew what the law says, because he didn't make up what he just said here. For all the talk about Jesus being so different from Moses when it comes to the law, Jesus was repeating Leviticus 19, verse 18, and Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. He was just repeating Moses. The second commandment, he says, is like the first because love of God is extricably linked to love of neighbor. That's why we have in our confession, uh, our public confession, uh, that we, have, we sin against God by sinning against those whom he has created in his image. Quoting Calvin again, he says, uh, whenever, whenever someone has so deeply offended us or even an atheist who breathes insults against uh, uh, our God and against his Christ and does the church great harm, even persecuting it. Alvin says, let us nevertheless recognize not his faults, but the image of God still imprinted on him. To, to, to hurt another human being is not just to hurt another potential Christian. And so we better be 
you know, we, we don't want to turn them off because we don't want to lose the opportunity to win them to Christ. As important as that is, it is enough that they are created in the image of God that we refrain from hurting them. That we, that we not only refrain from hurting them, but if you look at the, the Westminster Catechisms and the Heidelberg Catechism, the way they treat the Ten Commandments, Wow, not only that I refrain from hurting them, but that I do everything in my power to ensure that their rights and their goods and their happiness are protected. Wow. But that's the requirement of the great commandment. Christians and non-Christians are obligated to the great commandment. We will all be judged on the last day according to the great commandment. The great commandment will be the standard by which all of us, all human beings are judged. The only difference is that those who trust in Jesus Christ have his obedience to the great commandment imputed to them. And so they are fulfillers of the law in him, not because of their own righteousness, but in him. And those who are trusting in their own righteousness, well, you know, basically I love people, I think. You know, I'm not Mother Teresa or anything, but don't let us get out of control. Uh, But I think I'm pretty good. I take care of people. Uh, I think think about God a couple times a year. Uh, uh, You know, and sometimes when I'm on the freeway. Um, Especially about other people in relation to God. Uh, when I'm on the freeway, and where they might spend eternity. Um, so, you know, I, I'm not, it's not totally outside of my comfort zone. Uh, you know, no, it's, it's, it's uh, either you're going to point to Jesus Christ and say, talk to him about it. <laughs> He's my righteousness. Or you're going to defend yourself in court. You're going to say, yeah, actually, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to win this case myself. Um, but we're all, going to be, we're all going to be judged on the basis of total conformity of heart, mind, soul, and strength to loving God and our neighbor. And for the Christian who is now released from the fear of the guilt for having violated this thoroughly, This law now comes to us not as a sentence of death, but as a a frame for our lives. It's not the way to life, but it's the way of life. Now we are free to imperfectly, inconsistently, frailly, fallingly, haltingly fulfill the command to love God and our neighbor. We're free for the first time without fear of judgment, and hope of rewards. Just simply because it is our calling and we're released from the fear of its sentence. So Christians and non-Christians alike are obligated to the same moral law that requires personal and social justice, even love between every person. And because there are remnants of that image in every human being, We shouldn't be surprised that Christians can often work together with non-Christians on most of those issues. 
And sometimes, when Christians get together, it's more dangerous. Let me just be honest. There are moments in the history of the world when it hasn't been so terrific that all the Christians got together and figured out how to run the world. You need checks and balances. I'm, a, I'm thrilled to death that Thomas Jefferson, a complete deist and infidel, uh, was, was part of that whole process in the 1780s and 90s. Uh, wow. I mean, that, it's great that you had people there working together with, with uh, you know, most of, the, most of the Orthodox Christians were Calvinists, and so they believed in sin and total depravity, and you need to restrain government and not let it... Yeah. All of, all of, but non-Christians were able to buy into that and, and work on it and, and kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge. You, I'm not doing this because I believe in original sin or anything like that. But, uh, yeah, I think that we do kind of have to be careful about Letting, letting uh, government have too much power over our lives and so forth. Um, but the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 are, well, let me, let me back up for just a moment here, really just a moment. Uh, the, the moral law in, in the Old Covenant has at its heart the Ten Commandments. And then the civil and ceremonial laws are attached as appendices. Attached as appendices. And so in every era, before the fall, after the fall, uh, after Noah, after Abraham, after Sinai, all the way into the present age till Jesus returns, the moral law is unchangeable. It expresses God's own moral character. There is absolutely nothing intrinsic in God's nature that requires the sacrifice of sheep and goats. That requires temple worship. That requires you to put a, a, a fence on your roof so that your neighbors don't fall off when they come over for parties one of the civil code, pieces of the civil code. There's nothing in God's inherent nature that requires all that stuff. But the moral law does express what God cannot tolerate and what he does require because of his, his nature, his moral nature. That doesn't change, but that does. When the new covenant comes, this is rendered obsolete. The whole Mosaic Sinai covenant which did not introduce this, but introduced this, is gone. It's obsolete. And now, with the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, it's nothing less than another Sinai moment, because Jesus, it's the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is clearly taking the position of Moses, and not only of Moses, because Moses never said, you have heard it said, but I say. Jesus is saying, you have heard it said, Leviticus 16, Deuteronomy. This isn't, you've heard it said from, from Phil. 
This is, you have heard it said from God through Moses in the Old Testament. You have heard it said, but I say, regime change. New constitution for the people of God. I am writing a new constitution. And the Sermon on the Mount is exactly, is exactly in relation to us what the ceremonial and civil law was to Israel. The Sermon on the Mount is not for the nations any more than the civil and ceremonial laws were for the nations in the Old Covenant. The Sermon on the Mount is for the body of Christ. And so the difference is the body of Christ in the New Covenant is not a political order. The body of Christ in the New Covenant is not geopolitical. You don't vote for a president. You don't, you know, it is, it is a spiritual body created by the Spirit through word and sacrament. And so the Sermon on the Mount is not for everybody. The Sermon on the Mount is not to be legislated. In fact, it's dangerous. It's utopian to, to try to legislate something like the Sermon on the Mount when it is only for those who have been given a new heart, according to Jeremiah 31, as part of the fruition of the New Covenant. And the Apostle Paul issues commands in 1 Corinthians that are identical to the commands in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, the Sermon on the Mount is pretty strenuous. Don't retaliate, even against those who persecute you. Uh, 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 No divorce except in the case of adultery. Um... You have uh, committed adultery even if you lust in your heart. You have committed murder even if you have, have said, it, I hate, said I hate you uh, to someone even in, just in your heart. Uh, your, your relationships with each other have to, be, uh, have to be about giving. And your relationships, Christians, with non-Christians has to be uh, extremely tolerant, just as God the Father is tolerant in this age in a way in which he wasn't tolerant when he took Israel under his wing as a political nation. Now he is. He sends rain upon the just and the unjust alike, and you need to have that same mind which he has towards, towards the rest of humanity. Can we, can we do the thing with the fence on the roof? Can we get back to the to the 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 you know nearly a thousand regulations that I think we could do? I mean, this seems eminently undoable, and it is. It is. Which is exactly why Jeremiah prophesied, God prophesied through Jeremiah, in the last days I will make a new covenant. It won't be like the covenant that they made with me at Mount Sinai. It will be a new covenant when I will write my law on their hearts. I will give, take their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. And I will forgive all of their sins and remember their iniquities no more. The only condition in which the Sermon on the Mount isn't just completely absurd. It would be totally absurd and foolhardy for any nation to make the laws of the Sermon on the Mount the laws of the land. Completely foolhardy. But we live, in, we, we, we live differently in our lives as Christians, as believers, 
then we expect the political order to live. Uh, Paul says stop suing each other. But Paul doesn't say anywhere in 1 Corinthians uh, anything about Christians being ineligible for court cases as as, uh, 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 jury members or as uh, judges. We have examples of conversions of Roman centurions. I mean, that's like a general. Uh, Roman military officers being converted and not a word is said about them leaving, repenting of their secular station as a military leader. Oh, but by the way, if a corporal comes to you with a, with a sword to your neck saying that by Caesar's orders you must be taken away in chains for professing the name of Christ, then you have to let him do it. And so there's this weird tension living in the, the, as citizens of two countries. We have, we have double passports, double identity here. On one hand, uh, we, are, we, we are citizens of this passing evil age. And yet, on the other hand, ultimately our citizenship is in heaven. And the church is the place where that heavenly citizenship is impressed upon us where the Ellis Island, the Ellis Island in which, in which we're inducted into a new family, into that, that heavenly embassy, and yet we remain, we remain scattered as salt and light in the world. And so it may well be that a, a Christian who is a police officer, for example, has to use force on a regular basis. And he doesn't say, in the name of Jesus, he says, you know, by the authority committed to me by the state of California. Uh, and uh, he'll, have to, he'll have to use force. But can never use force. Can never suggest the use of force. Cannot encourage the use of force. Cannot underwrite a policy that suggests coercion of any kind on the part of Caesar in pursuit of Christian distinctive faith and practice. We'll have to refrain from using his power in that way. In that realm, he is powerless physically because the gospel is the power of God and the salvation. Hard to live that way. It's really, it's difficult, and, and boy, praise the Lord for those who are in military service and in uh, law enforcement who have to think, uh, many other professions where this is true too, but have to, have to clearly distinguish these two vocations, these two callings, not be schizophrenic and separate them, but also not run them together and, compl- and, and, and confuse them. Christians have a calling, a responsibility, even more than non-Christians, to care for those who are in need. Have more of a responsibility to love and serve our neighbors, even than our non-Christian friends and relatives have, because 
The light has dawned. The new creation has swept us into its, its train. We have more of a responsibility. But the responsibility that Christians have in their myriad callings is distinct from the responsibility the church has, which is narrower in its scope, more specific in its ambitions, and more clearly delineated in its mandate from its Lord. There are lots of things you'll have to do in your various secular callings that are determined for you by your profession, best practices in your profession. But not so in the church. It's determined for us in the canon of Holy Scripture, in the New Testament Constitution. And that's where the church has to let... Its members have freedom, of course, when it comes to public policy issues, when it comes to what charitable organizations you give to, when it comes to uh, what marches you want to be a part of, uh, you know, whether you, whether, uh, you want to uh, get in a dinghy for Amnesty International or you want to uh, uh, march in a pro-life rally. All of this all of these things, the church is going to preach the whole of Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, the law, and the gospel, so that hopefully you're immersed in the world that God created, redeemed, and will one day restore. But then when it comes to fleshing that out, where the rubber meets the road, and there are difficult, complicated questions about how best to love and serve our neighbors, there we leave that to the discretion of every believer who is led by the Spirit on the basis of his authoritative word. All right, next. There are other issues involved, and I'll touch on some of those issues uh, next time. We'll have one more opportunity to, to talk about these things and run out of time, but next week I'll leave uh, time for, for questions and discussion of some of these issues. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you that you're... Kingdom is coming down from heaven and even now is sweeping strangers and aliens into its wake, taking uh, us who were completely all alienated from your commonwealth and making us part of your, your great Israel, your great Zion. Father, we look around the world and uh, turn on the news and uh, read the newspaper and think, the, 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 the concerns are so grave. The, the condition of the world is so serious. Uh, we're often overwhelmed by the need. We're overwhelmed by environmental disaster, by social and political unrest. We're overwhelmed by the cruelty and inhumanity, uh, not only of individuals, but of systems and regimes. And yet, Father... By your common grace, you have called us to serve alongside our non-Christian friends and neighbors. Uh, not to save the world, but simply to do our part to serve at our station to which you have called us to simply love and serve our neighbor. Help us to see our neighbors not as abstract ideas, but as actual concrete people. And help us to love and serve each neighbor who actually crosses our path every day. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We are going to pause right there, pay some bills. When we come back, 
Uh, we will be listening to lecture number 16, the next lecture in the series, by Dr. Michael Horton on the Great Commission. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. When he asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Jesus wasn't looking for affirmation. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Listening to Byron Christian Radio. It's. Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Hey! You wanna feel holier than thou? Try Bible Thirst! Holy drinks for people who need gratuitous amounts of piety. With all new flavors like prosperity, instant abundance. It's like adding your bank account to an electrical storm. Sound the alarm. You're going to be uncomfortably holy. What's that? You want mana? Well, how about super mana? Made with lightning. Real lightning. Preaching. <laughs> You'll be good at it. It's a holy drink for men. Clergy. These aren't your pastor's puns. They are righteous puns. Piety puns. Sinner, saint, sinner, saint. Prayers, lights, cross lights, power lights, more lights than your body has room for. You'll be so holy, Mother Teresa will be like, slow down. And you're like, no! And roundhouse kick her in the face with your Bible pants. You know, so much holiness, holiness. Ah. Just praying all the time. Power praying, power preaching, power praising, power fasting, power meditating, power laughing, power spawning, Chester. You know, so much Chester. Just like Esau. Give prosperity to babies, they'll be holy too. Make your babies run abnormally fast. They'll be as fast as Elijah. People watch them running and think they're Elijah. They'll race as fast as Elijah. In a race with the actual Elijah. And it'll be a time they get deported back to Israel. Hey, go with the for sure thing. Don't gamble on your afterlife. Jesus. Try Bible thirst. The energy that will make you uh, holy. Uh. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. We're back. 
Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church. <laughs> Especially if what you're hearing here doesn't match up with what you're hearing at church. It creates, well, problems. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we can't do what we do without your help. If you don't already support us financially, please consider doing so. In fact, don't just consider it, do it. And you can do that by visiting our website at fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you'll see the famous two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 monthly to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you could do that by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box five zero eight, Fishers, Indiana, zip code four six zero three eight. Okay, here's lecture number seventeen in the Great Commission series that we've we've been working our way through. Here is Dr. Michael Horton. Our gracious heavenly Father, we thank you for the word that you have given us, the joy that we have received being able to feast at your table, around your word, to revel once again in the joy of being not only forgiven, but adopted as your children and co-heirs with Christ. And Father, uh, we pray that you would help us uh, in this hour also to, uh, or the half hour that we have here to think about uh, a little bit more deeply what difference being a co-heir in your kingdom makes. Uh, even as we carry out our vocations in the kingdoms of this age. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week I talked about the importance of both the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. It's sort of, uh, you know, revelation. I know it's shocking, but it's true. This is worth just coming to adult Sunday school this morning just for this. Six plus four equals ten. Right. Yeah. Uh, now for me, actually, if you know how bad I am at math, this actually is quite a triumph, so I'm very proud of myself. But six is not four. Another thing that I've learned. Six is not four, and four is not six. But you need both to make ten. The law is not the gospel. The gospel is not the law. The great commission is not the great commandment. The great commandment is not the great commission. But the whole Christian faith includes both. And you can't get rid of one, but you also can't confuse them. The great commission is not the great commandment, and the great commandment is not the great commission. We have to distinguish these two mandates without confusing them. And the danger on both ends of the spectrum today is either to separate the Great Commission from the Great Commandment or to confuse them. Those are the two extremes today. The one is what many of us were raised with uh, where the, the, the gospel didn't really have anything to do with how we live our lives in the world. Uh, D.L. Moody, the famous evangelist, said, uh, God has given me a life raft and said, uh, Dwight, save as many as you can. Uh, he says, I'm not, I'm not called to do anything uh, uh, here in terms of improving the conditions of my, my neighbors in the world. My concern is to save souls. 
Now, he did a lot to improve the conditions of neighbors in the world, but out of that kind of thinking, a lot of Christians divorced their discipleship in the world, Monday through Saturday, from their high calling in Christ as Christians gathered uh, for worship on the Lord's Day. Did it really make any difference? What are you, what are you doing on Monday when you, when you get up? Does your high calling in Christ have anything to do with that? Well, I guess you don't swear as much, you don't drink as much, you don't uh, smoke as much, you're kind of uh, uh, I guess nicer to people. But what difference does it really make? Is there a relationship between our calling as Christians in the Great Commission and the the central task in the Great Commission of the ministry of word, sacrament, and discipline and how that looks out on the ground Monday through Saturday? Well, a lot of of us grew up in in churches where that wasn't quite clear. We were waiting for the rapture. uh, we didn't really care about this world uh, that much because, after all, uh, the Antichrist was going to be here Thursday and we'd give him all of our mortgages and uh, he'd have all our debts and he'd have to settle the world's problems, which, of course, he couldn't do. And then after that uh, failure, Jesus would return. And so what do you do in the meantime? Uh, at the opposite end of the spectrum is kind of a reaction against that, a reaction that says, look, uh, heaven is a, a place that we make on earth. The kingdom of God is something that we are building, even though the book of Hebrews says it's a kingdom we're receiving, which is why it cannot be shaken. Uh, it's a kingdom that we're building. Jesus got the ball rolling, and he gave us a blueprint, but now we are extending his incarnation. We are continuing and completing his redeeming and reconciling work. And so either we separate the kingdom of Christ from the kingdoms of this age, or we confuse these two kingdoms. That's the tendency that we see again and again. And it's very difficult for us to walk that tightrope. We saw last week that Paul in 1 Corinthians echoes Jesus' Sermon on the Mount when he says, look, in the Christian community, you don't go around suing each other. You are, you are a, a, a city set upon a hill. You are different. Uh, there, are, uh, there are expectations and requirements of living within the body of Christ that are different from those laws that govern civil society. And so, hey, you sue happy Corinthians, stop suing each other. Stop beating each other up. Stop... Uh, bringing your sectarian spirit that you have from your ungodly past into the church where every Lord's Day is like American Idol and you have all these virtuoso performances. Realize that we who partake of one bread each Lord's Day, Paul says, are one body because we eat one bread. The New Testament forbids any use of force in the Great Commission and yet commands the use of force in the great commandment. The great commandment requires coercive enforcement. The great commandment, loving our neighbors, the, the worst thing that you could possibly do is for your neighbors, for the good of your neighbors, is to expect the ethic of the Sermon on the Mount to be legislated. 
in civil society. Uh, we, if we love our neighbors, then when, when, uh, when a, a wife is being battered, we want the police to come knocking at the door. We want the police to be able to drag the offender away and, 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 and bring, bring that person to justice. Uh, we, we love our neighbors, but we do not, we do not meet opposition for the cause of Christ with force. For that, we cannot respond by retaliating or by uh, exerting force. Now, that might be really clear when it comes to taking your gun out of your drawer uh, uh, in China when the police come knocking, they find out you have a church in there. Uh, But it's a little more difficult for us as Americans when we think about For example, what policies do we think we should legislate uh, in the kingdoms of this age? And we sometimes forget that when we do that, we are asking Caesar to exercise his properly coercive right to power given him by God as a minister of justice. We're expecting him to exercise that properly coercive power. And if we are, it better be in the service of the Great Commandment, not the Great Commission. Not on the basis of the good of the Christian faith and the advance of His kingdom and His gospel, but on the basis of loving and serving our neighbors. Charles Finney was one person who got that wrong. Charles Finney, the 19th century evangelist, said the church is a society of moral reformers. And so he confused these two kingdoms, Charles Finney said, uh, look, the Great Commission didn't give us any instructions about how to carry it out. It just said go. That's a direct quote from him. It just says go. Which is a kind of difficult to reconcile with the fact that he actually said, go therefore into all the world and preach the gospel, baptize and teach them everything that I have commanded you. He didn't just say go. <laughs> uh, it, it's a longer verse than that. He said more than go. He, he said go, do this. This is the Great Commission, and it's different from the Great Commandment. This is, some, this is one of the most important distinctions for us today because a lot of Christians have been raised in churches that don't distinguish between the church in its formal ministry of word and sacrament and discipline defined by the Great Commission, and the church as all of the people who leave the doors to get in their cars and go out into their callings throughout the week. It's an important distinction. We're gathered here today on the Lord's Day, called away from our ordinary callings in the world, in order to be resalted, so that we can be scattered out into the world throughout the week. And very often in the church today, it happens exactly in the reverse. Uh, Coming to church is like uh, uh, coming to uh, receive your instructions uh, for for world-transforming activity. Here's how you're going to change your world. You're going to change your neighborhood. And then you get uh, identified with whatever group you, you are attracted to for bringing that about. The church is made up of 18,000 different ministries, find your ministry, find your ministry in the church, 
And that does two things. One, it means that the sheep are underfed because they're always doing like Martha, not learning like Mary Magdalene. So they're not really becoming disciples, and they're being recruited by generals uh, in the Lord's army. Uh, they're being recruited for all of this activity, all of this labor in the church. We look at it from the Reformation vantage point in exactly opposite terms. People come to church to receive, to be made into the people of God, so that they can be scattered, not in church-related ministries, but out in the world. That's where their good works go. One way of talking about this is to think visually in terms of an arrow going out from the gathered assembly, word, sacrament, discipline, the ministry of the office bearers, especially here the ministry of word and sacrament. going out to the care of the saints, their spiritual and material needs, elders and deacons. And then the whole body of Christ prepared to go out into the world, and that is where your good works go. This is what creates the faith, and this is where the good works that faith creates go. So we don't deny the importance of good works. We just we have a different place for them to go. The main place, yes, of course, there's, there's the one anothering in the body of Christ. We have deacons so that we care for the material needs of the body of Christ. Do good to all people, especially those of the household of faith. Yes. But in terms of your, your everyday good works that you perform ordinarily, not acts of charity, but acts of of justice, just carrying out your vocation, that doesn't really go to the church. That goes to your neighbors, Christian, non-Christian, Buddhist, Hindu, Muslim, atheist. Your good works go out there. And the, this means that the Lord is always the, the giver. The Lord is always the giver. Jesus Christ is dispensing His gifts, even gifts of common grace, to our non-Christian neighbors, through us. We're not building anything. He is giving. He's doing all the gift giving. Every good and perfect gift, James says, comes down from the Father of light. Not up from us to Him, but down from Him to us and through us out to our neighbor. That's how it works. That's where good works go. I know I've quoted it before, but it's still worth repeating Martin Luther's line, God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor does. Don't present your good works to God. He has all the good works that he needs. And when we present our good works to God as if we should be repaid, then we are actually enraging God <laughs> because uh, of our pride, of our arrogance. Instead, faith goes up to God, not good works. Faith goes up to God. That's what God wants from us, and that's what he even gives to us. Even that is a gift. But faith goes up to God, works come down from God to us, 
and then through us out into the world. Got to be very careful not to reverse that flow of gifts. What happens when we do? I want to give one case study, show you an example of, of what happens here when we reverse the flow of gifts. William Wilberforce, uh, most of you would recognize his name, is a great example of someone who changed his world, uh, not because he wanted to change the world, but because he was a Christian caught in a very terrible situation who felt compelled to fulfill his calling, his vocation. His years are 1759 to 1833. And uh, he was a Church of England layperson. He was converted by reading the Puritans. And uh, his pastor was John Newton, the famous author of Amazing Grace, Calvinistic uh, Anglican. And Newton had been a slave trader. And then he was converted, and he had thought about becoming a, a politician to try to end the slave trade. Uh, that, song, that hymn, Amazing Grace, he wrote out of that profound sense of forgiveness and the amazingness of grace. And uh, he decided, however, to go into the ministry to preach. That was his calling. That was his vocation. And William Wilberforce uh, was a, a young man who, who asked... Uh, John uh, Newton, his pastor, what he should do. And he said, I really believe I'm called to the ministry. And Newton said, no, I don't think you are. I don't think you're called to the ministry. I think you have so many gifts of persuasion and you are so, you are so burdened by this matter that burdens me too, slavery, that I, I think you ought to go into politics and you ought to do everything in your power to wipe this blight off of our land. So Wilberforce did. And John Newton, we don't have any record of his sermons that he preached on British policy. Certainly, where Scripture speaks, he spoke, and he spoke against slavery, as we must do wherever God speaks. Nevertheless, in terms of public policy, he says it's going to have to be done by Christians, in my congregation and in other congregations where people know what they believe and why they believe it and they are able to convince their nominal Protestant neighbors that this is the course we should follow. And so Wilberforce wrote a book called uh, Practical Christianity. Like, oh no, not another book, Practical Christianity. But here's what, he said, here's what Practical Christianity meant to him. He says, first of all, the grand defect of our age is neglect of the peculiar doctrines of Christianity. I wrote this out of a concern, he says, that the bulk of those who belong to the class of Orthodox Christians nevertheless seem to possess scarcely any distinct knowledge of the real nature and principles of the religion they profess. The problem is not the doctrine without the deeds but a vague moralism that denies the power of the gospel. If we listen to their conversation, virtue is praised and vice is censured. Piety is perhaps applauded and profaneness condemned. So far all is well. 
But let anyone who would not be deceived by these barren generalities examine a little more closely, and he will find that not to Christianity in particular, but at best to religion in general, perhaps to mere morality, their homage is intended to be paid. With Christianity, as distinct from these, they are little acquainted. Their views of it have been so cursory and superficial that far from discerning its characteristics and essence, they have little more than perceived those exterior circumstances which distinguish it from other forms of religion. This poverty of superficial religion, this voluntary ignorance, necessarily weakens not only the faith of believers, but causes them to go along with the flow of the culture. God's supernatural revelation gives us new truths that we could never have known otherwise, not just maxims of worldly policy or a scheme of mere morals. The heart of this word is the gospel, the promise of a Savior. He says all of the Old Testament saints looked forward eagerly to His coming, but many churches today seem to proceed as if nothing ever happened. Inadequate conceptions of the corruption of human nature are at the bottom of all of this. Rather than lodging their acceptance with God in Christ's sacrifice, they really rest their eternal hopes on a vague general persuasion of the unqualified mercy of some supreme being, or, still more erroneously, they rely in the main on their own negative or positive merits. They have never summoned themselves to this entire and unqualified renunciation of all their own merits and their own strength, and therefore they remain strangers to the natural lostness of the human heart. They consider not that Christianity is a scheme for justifying the ungodly by Christ dying for them while yet sinners, and instead they make the fruits of holiness the cause rather than the effects. They reverse this flow. Only this ignorance of the gospel itself can explain the lack of affection for Jesus Christ and the word of God among Christians in England today. Only the gospel of grace in all of its fullness gives meaning to the otherwise vague phrase, believing in Jesus. This is in his book, Practical Christianity. And he says, this is exactly why, he says, people will talk about morality and politics, but not the gospel. Isn't it ironic? Here's someone who wanted to end slavery. He wanted to abolish this moral, heinous tragedy. And yet he knew that that couldn't change until the people themselves were converted and the only power of, the, of conversion is the gospel, not mere moral persuasion. That faith that Wilberforce commends is simply, in his words, Christianity in its best days, as in the religion of the most eminent reformers, and so clearly inculcated in the liturgy and confession of our Church of England. But it's in the liturgy, but nobody really talks about it uh, outside of that. Now contrast Wilberforce, who, who almost single-handedly abolished slavery in the British Empire, simply because he was fulfilling his calling and loving his neighbors, with Josiah Strong. I've got to do this very quickly. Uh, Josiah Strong, 1847 to 1916, are his dates. He was a disciple of Charles Finney, and so he was taking it all very seriously. All the pioneers of the social gospel were disciples of Charles Finney. He was going to uh, you know, end alcohol. He was part of the prohibition cause. 
uh, and America would be the headwaters of revival around the world and finally we would realize that we are building the kingdom. We're going to build the kingdom all around the world. And uh, that means he knew, he knew exactly how Jesus would vote on every issue before Congress. He was, he was fairly convinced of it. He wrote a book, Our Country, Its Promises and Its Crisis, 1885. Of course, that's what a minister is trained to do, write a book on national policy and the health of the country. And here's what happens. He's one of the founders. He's regarded as one of the founders of the social gospel movement. Here's from his book, just a few quotes from his book. Anglo-Saxons have a duty from God to civilize and Christianize the rest of the world. There are seven perils today, Catholicism, Mormonism, socialism, alcohol, wealth, urbanization, and immigration. Just immigration in general. Uh, Unlike other European races whose religion is bound up with external rights and institutions, in other words, creeds, you know, we have deeds, Anglo-Saxon, that is English religion, is pure spiritual Christianity. Thus the Anglo-Saxon, especially American race, is destined to be for all men its brother's keeper. Missions brings development, commerce follows the missionary. Christianizing talent on a wide scale, including the money power, has already occurred in our country. Triumph of Anglo-Saxon blood, but untainted by the corruption of British monarchalism is what we need now. We are about to see the final competition of races for which the Anglo-Saxon is being schooled. Long before the thousand millions of immigrants are here, the mighty centrifugal tendency inherent in the Anglo-Saxon stock and strengthened in the United States will assert itself. Then this race of unequaled energy... I'm on the Will Then this race of unequaled energy with all the majesty of numbers and the might of wealth behind it the representation, let us hope, of the largest liberty, the purest Christianity, and the highest civilization, having developed peculiarly aggressive traits, calculated to impress its institutions upon mankind, will spread itself over the whole earth. If I read not amiss, this powerful race will move down upon Mexico, down upon Central and South America, out upon the islands of the sea, over upon Africa and beyond. And can anyone doubt that the result of this competition of races will be the survival of the fittest? The United States is destined to dispossess many weaker races, assimilate others, and mold the remainder until in a very true and important sense it has Anglo-Saxonized mankind. This will lead to God's final and complete solution of the dark problem of heathenism among many inferior peoples. And after he wrote that, he became the president of the American Evangelical Alliance. And Teddy Roosevelt made him his personal chaplain of his progressive uh, uh, platform. I mean, really, it, 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 it's, it's uh, not always the case that those who take the kingdom by force <laughs> into their own hands to improve the lot of mankind actually end up 
improving uh, the lot of mankind. Another example would be Lyman Abbott, uh, who's called the virtual chaplain of Theodore Roosevelt's progressivism. Uh, what Jesus saw, he said, humanity is becoming. You know, this, the, we are building the kingdom of, 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 of moral improvement. Day by day, things are getting better. And yet he was one of the architects of manifest destiny, that God has given white people the continent of North America to civilize and to take over. He said of the Indians, uh, they are inferior peoples. Barbarism has no rights with which civilization is bound to respect. In the history of the human race, nothing is more certain than that civilization must conquer and barbarism must be subdued. God has given us this calling, this task, he said, as a minister, to subdue the barbarians, to drive the Canaanites out of the land. See, this is what happens when you confuse the old covenant with the new covenant. As if we are Israel and just put whatever race doesn't happen to be your own, in the category of the Canaanites. And uh, President, he was President McKinley's uh, uh, counselor. President McKin McKinley was a new school Presbyterian, follower of, of, uh, of uh, uh, Charles Finney. He told an interviewer when he went to war uh, uh, in the Philippines, I went down on my knees and prayed Almighty God for light and guidance more than one night. And one night late it came to me that there was just nothing left for us to do but to take them all and to take over the Philippines and uplift and civilize and Christianize them and by God's grace to do the very best we could by them. Mark Twain replied to that interview, I fail to understand how the Filipino has been lifted up by the gospel that was rammed into him with bayonets. And although Abbott was a Unitarian, he was a Congregationalist officially, but he in doctrine was a Unitarian, when the aged Finney wrote his memoirs, wrote an endorsement, and this was his endorsement. This is the most fascinating religious biography that I have ever read. It is as dramatic, full of surprises, almost as marvelous in its manifestation of divine power as the book of Acts. It is coming out at just the right time. And ever since, America has been caught in these culture wars between the Christian right and the Christian left, both of which are the children of Charles Finney. And desperate in our day, desperate in our day, that we recover that Reformation theology that was at the heart of Wilberforce's faith and practice that actually did lead to great good for great numbers of people. Any questions? Yeah, yeah, it's it's kind of uh, it's 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 pretty amazing. Yeah, a lot of stuff was said like that uh, in those days. We we often think it was just all going on in Germany. It wasn't that Romanticism was was very much uh, in the bloodstream of of Americans too. You know, think of the Battle Hymn of the Republic, the Second Coming, basically uh, uh, being represented as the triumph of the Union forces. I mean, that was. Yeah. 
No matter what the politics are. Yep. Yeah, see the law, this is this is where it gets tricky though. The law gives us commands that have to be applied in certain circumstances. It was easy for Israel, well easier, because uh, there were several hundred specific policy prescriptions for every commandment. How do you apply this in a civil society? Well, you you know by by reading the law in the Old Testament. It was applied in very concrete, specific ways to the nation. But that's when a nation was taken, when the church and a nation were fused. The church was a nation. And today the church isn't a nation. That old covenant is abolished, having been fulfilled. It's obsolete now. And uh, the pedagogue <laughs> is gone. We've, we have now, uh, you know, the training wheels are off. Uh, uh, not the moral law is gone, but the specific applications. What that means is now we have to make specific applications by good and necessary consequence drawn from New Testament commands. And that is exceed, it is exceedingly difficult. It's not exceedingly difficult to know that we have to be stewards of creation and care about claims uh, such as uh, the the the, the uh, uh, thawing of the polar ice caps, but it does not tell us what scientific interpretation we should have of it, or what policy we should take toward it. All of that depends on sanctified wisdom, and it's possible for a non-Christian by common grace to get that get the right answer on something like that and a Christian to get the wrong answer. So it's applying God's law. Not saying it's not relevant for the civil magistrate, but saying how is it relevant? Christians are going to differ on that. And pastors only have the authority to require of their congregations that which is clearly stated in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence can be based, is based on concrete, specific passages. So that's where Christians are going to differ, and that's where the, the ministers cannot use the, the, the pulpit as their own bully pulpit, but have to speak for the Lord.
Yeah. Yeah. Great question. Great, great question. Yeah. Scale, uh, 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 economies of scale. There is. Uh, I, I'm I'm a, a fan of parachurch agencies for that sort of thing. Uh, uh, you know, Christians can gather themselves together for any particular cause they want. Uh, I, I have a problem with Christians gathering themselves together for a political party, you know, the Republican Party at prayer or the Democratic Party at prayer. But to, ga- to come together and say, we want, we want to help end malaria uh, in Africa, or we would like to get together and build hospitals, you know, Christians doing that sort of thing. There's a long history of this sort of thing. But churches shouldn't own hospitals. Churches and denominations shouldn't uh, 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 run abortion clinics or soup kitchens. But Christians ought to get together and do that sort of thing and do it in the name of Christ. Give a cup of cold water in the name of Christ. But I think those are the sorts of things that, uh, and those can be very powerful. Look at World Vision. World Vision does more than any, than all of the evangelical denominations combined. Uh, you know, it, it, the URC isn't sending a ship to Japan right now. We don't have a ship. And it's probably good that we don't have a ship, especially if it had guns on it. Uh, you know, um, the there are God has given God has given the state to to, to minister justice, uh, and He has also created this freedom, this freedom of Christians to congregate or assemble themselves together outside of the church in assemblies uh, of uh, you know, parachurch organizations to try to to meet specific challenges. Yeah. Right, and that's the distinction I was I was making here that that uh, you know, the church gathered and the church scattered. When the church gathers, it doesn't gather to uh, to fulfill its callings in the world. The church doesn't gather to uh, to be, you know we're we're parents, children, friends, and neighbors out there in the world. We're brothers and sisters fellow disciples, co-heirs with Christ, as we gather to hear his word and receive his sacraments. Uh, so there's a difference between what the church can do as an institution authorized only to deliver the Great Commission, fulfill the Great Commission, and what Christians can do more broadly outside of those narrow parameters of the church's calling in their daily lives. Dan, and then we'll wrap it up. Right. Right. I mean, I. That's the, very important. Very important. Some Christians will say, "I want to work with World Vision because I want to. I want to do this in the name of Christ." And I say, "Fine, go go for it." But don't disparage the person who wants to do for the, exactly the same motives wants to do it with Peace Corps. Uh, and you can make good arguments on on both sides of that. I think, who you know. Uh, 
two people, one going to Peace Corps, one going to uh, the World Vision can do it. But I would also say this. You can also, you don't have to join anything to be a, 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 a neighbor fulfilling your calling. When you're taking care of your child, when you are loving your, uh, your, your parents who are uh, struggling in health, when you are uh, uh, helping your neighbor fix, fix his roof because uh, it's raining, or, well, it doesn't really rain here, but because it's, uh, uh, you know, uh, help fix his air conditioning, um, you're doing, you're, that is fulfilling your calling. And it's wonderful to be relieved of imagining that you are building God's kingdom and to know you're receiving his kingdom and now you're free to actually love and serve particular neighbors, not the idea of neighbor, but particular concrete neighbors who come across our path every day feeding a child at the breakfast table is a good work, fulfilling a vocation. That, that is honorable. That is giving gifts. When that child prays, Lord, give me this day my daily bread, God is answering that prayer through you. There is no task, no task, uh, that is, is more honorable than concretely loving specific human beings created in the image of God. No cause is more important than that concrete act every day. All right, we'll pick up there next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that... Yeah, I mean, it looks so overwhelming when we see a world that needs so much repair, and we know that... Your son is returning at the end of the age and in the meantime we are proclaiming the gospel, working well with our hands so that we may win the respect of outsiders and have something to give to those in need. Uh, and yet, Father, sometimes we, just, we feel the burden so much that we want to do more than that. For those of us who are called to do more than, more than we are doing, Father, I pray that you would uh, show us how. You would give us the wisdom and discernment through other people who recognize our gifts and callings, that even people here uh, may, may take up uh, those uh, callings in, in ways perhaps that you're not calling all of us to. Help us all to recognize the different gifts that you give to us and help us all to figure out how it is that we can love and serve our neighbors out in the world each day on the basis of the way in which you have loved and served us and continue to love and serve us in Christ through word and sacrament. For we pray in his name. Amen. Fantastic lectures. So what would you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow. May God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.